Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is filmmaker Aram Parveen Bilal. Aram recently released her third feature film called I'll Meet You There, a dramatic thriller about the relationship between a Chicago policeman and his daughter and his long-estranged father. Aram not only directed the movie, she also wrote the screenplay. The film was in competition at South by Southwest in 2020 and was recently released in North America. The movie is also set to be released in the Middle East this week. We'll have links in the show notes about where you can check it out. Aram and I started our conversation talking about the film's storylines and themes. It is a film about um, intergenerational conflict. It is a film about the American Muslim experience, as I see it in this particular slice of the story. And um, specifically, it's the story of a single father, a Muslim cop in Chicago, and his teenage ballerina. And it's about what happens when the estranged grandfather lands up on their doorstep unannounced from Pakistan and how that shifts the world in the home and as well as work where the cop is asked to go undercover in a masjid um, by the FBI and, and kind of being, you know, agnostic and kind of distant from the community. um, He, he still feels this sense of attack when he's asked to do this, but nevertheless in search of a higher paycheck, he does do it and he uses his dad to enter the mosque. So that's kind of, you know, the gist of the synopsis and then what specifically I'll meet you there is. Um, but yeah, it is, um, it's very exciting because it has started rolling out into the world earlier this year and uh, we've been getting very strong word of mouth. So it's been, a, it's been a long journey coming and it was my first ever script I wrote, even though not the first film I filmed. Yeah, you know, I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, what I what I loved about it is how rich the character what characters were. That you had you, you really focused on all three generations of, of Muslims in this family. Um, can you talk about that? That I imagine that was intentional. Um, and can you can you talk about why that was? Thank you for watching, and thank you for liking it. Um, yeah, I think that because this was the first script I wrote, these characters stayed with me for a very long time. I, you know, I'll be lying if I would say that the very first draft was, you know, what you saw. <laughs> so it took <laughs> it took a while. It took a lot, like a decade of the, you know, American Muslim experience for myself because I came to this country as an immigrant. I came to the U.S. for college, and I came to the U.S. for college like a year before nine eleven happened, and so. You know, as I graduated, I graduated into a world where the Patriot Act was really hefty. You know, things were happening to my friends, their parents. You know, they're being picked up from the mosque um, without any reason. This happened to somebody I knew at Caltech. Her father was picked up after Fajr prayers, and he was in jail for two years. Two years? Two years, being forced to eat, you know, the stuff we've heard, forced to eat pork, all of that stuff. And then after two years, the charges against him were incorrect filing of taxes. Oh, my God. And so, you know, this was the sort of stuff that was okay. Like the Patriot Act was guilty until proven innocent primarily, right? right? So, and then, you know, friends of, male friends of mine who had come from Pakistan, gone to colleges on the East Coast, told me that the FBI called their dorm rooms. So, you know, this was stuff that was happening around me. But, you know, I graduated in my bubble at a, at a very nerdy science school here in LA. And so this was a film that essentially came out of my experience then. But then over the course of the year, seeing how the world reacted, how, how the Muslim community in Pakistan 
Pakistan reacted, how the Muslim diaspora community reacted to the spotlight being shown in a very generic, you know, sort of a, a tacky way, calling Muslims terrorists and how people were reacting within the community to that sort of spotlight. All of those things kind of slowly trickled their way into what I wanted to say. Also capping, it was the fact that my sister who taught me how to sing and dance really became conservative over the course of this time oh, that's and, so and, and, and started thinking that, you know, music and dance is haram. And so my conversations, you know, the one, the conversations I wanted to have with her make it into the film, I think from starting from a, oh, you're wrong and I'm right type of approach, it became a, where can we continue to communicate about this? And, you know, perhaps you have a point of view and I have a point of view and we need to respect and listen. And then as we were making this film, you know, the politics of Donald Trump in this country in some ways was a weird silver lining, I think, for the American Muslim experience, I think, because before Trump, people even denied that Islamophobia existed. But he made it so like palpable, brutal and forefront that now I think people and there's been enough time for people to want to engage with the American Muslim experience and understand, Okay, wow, these people are like us. Whereas I think in the Bush era, there was this like immediate shut off. I think it took time for a rebound and the pendulum started swinging in a way that they could actually start looking at us in a human experience. And then I Trump, I think Trump made things so ridiculous that <laughs> so it, just un, it just underlined it more. And at least people now, now even in media, it's like hip to be Muslim. I don't think these things are accidental that you have green lights like Master of None and Rami. These are not accidents. Yeah. It isn't accidental that, you know, for a, First 10 years after 9-11, all Muslims, for the most part, you would see were like, you know, in usually in a very negative light or a very comical light, you know. So so there's anyway, so all of those, I think, because I started this really early in my life, the script, and then I grew through life, I reflected those experiences in the character. So it was very important for me not to paint any one character as right or wrong. And I wanted the audience at the end of it to connect and see the point of view of every single character. That was my desire in the script. I will say, yes, um, the nuanced characters are something I really was going for, and I'm very grateful that they came through. Uh, And by the way, at the backs of incredible actors who just elevated the script to a different level. 100%. You also said that this couldn't come out five or ten years ago, you know, when you first started writing it because the, the world wouldn't necessarily accept you know a muslim protagonist um can you talk about that yeah i mean absolutely i still remember i was at a film festival uh for a q a with mira nair the incredible filmmaker who yeah. did you know salam bombay the namesake and then most recently one of the my favorite films the reluctant fundamentalist yeah and she talked about you know the reluctant fundamentalist is about a muslim protagonist and it's about a person who after 9-11 is who's who very much prescribes to the Anglo lifestyle and the Western lifestyle and after 9-11 just decides to go back to Pakistan um, and identifies more with his roots. Anyway, she had the hardest time. She, Mira Nair, had the hardest time funding that film. And she was point blank told that we cannot fund a film about a Muslim protagonist. Wow. It's difficult. Despite and it being a, a best-selling a novel. Book, a best-selling yeah. novel. But, you know, we all know literature is more forgiving than, than yeah, sure. I mean, there's a different sort of power in visual media, right? It's right. more far-reaching. So the powers that be, uh, obviously, there is a reason why media and politics is, is such a difficult sort of field to get into because it's a mass control system of, you know, thoughts, 
And, and so you have a giant responsibility in these careers specifically, I feel, but there's also a big reason why the marginalized voices are kept out. Right. I mean, it's very clearly power dynamics to me at least. And so, um, anyway, so I had the same situation, you know, I I was, I I would keep getting notes like, well, something should be wrong in the mosque and, or like, (laughs) I I don't know, the stakes aren't high. There isn't it. And I'm just like, okay, well, why would I be telling that story? I'm like, the stakes are high from the family's point of view. Like you're not looking at what's happening to this family in the film or, you know, things like, oh, essentially because it was a heavily Brown film and I wasn't able to get meaty roles for the Caucasian characters, that was a big reason because, you know, the way the Hollywood industry works is they try and attach talent that then finance gets attracted. And then the worst thing, which is sort of like an effect of, you know, um, spiral like discrimination is the fact that a lot of, you know, South Asian names or just brown people of color names aren't, they don't call them named actors, which I find very offensive in the Hollywood. Like they're like, we need a named actor. I'm like, no, my actors have names. Thank you very much. What what that means is what that means is that we cannot raise enough money against this name. So this name isn't as internationally renowned. Well, guess what? The the films that are pushed internationally, the films that those aren't film, those are like tentpole films. You don't hire, you know, you don't like cast people of color in those because you are stuck with this notion that Superman can only be white or right. Bond can only be white or I'm very curious to see how the Green Knight has done. I haven't tracked oh, the right, box yeah. office with Dave Patel, but this is why people say there's a whole connection. This is why people say you need to have counter-expected, you know, a casting that is unexpected because our actors are stuck in this, in this like limit because they're not being cast for these big roles. And now because they're not being cast for those roles, they're not considered named thereby. Then our stories are not greenlit because oh, do you see that? It's a whole no, cycle. Of course. Yeah, it's a amazing. whole like very, very well-programmed machine to keep those stories out. So then we go into niche financing, which then limits, we're independent, which limits our reach of our films. Sorry, yeah. No, no, I I was just going to ask, how do you keep optimistic in this industry when you're just always kind of struggling? And I would imagine even as a female uh, filmmaker, that's a challenge. (laughs) It's a very good question. I feel like after every film, I'm like, I don't know if I can do another film. And it's just, I think... It goes back to what I said earlier, you know, I left a very promising career in science to do this and I felt the need to do it, obviously, because I loved cinema, but I also genuinely felt a responsibility for putting stories out there that nobody else has, you know, and and just putting the onus. And I will tell you, part of the reaction of this film has been incredible because I've had people call me and say, I've never seen someone like my grandfather on screen in an American, even an American indie, or I haven't seen you know, a film that's a drama that is portraying us in a very sort of realistic manner. You know, it's usually, again, I, I personally feel, and, and all respect to my comedy, you know, friends, because I think comedy is even harder. But I think that the powers that be green light comedy, because there's a certain element of distancing and not humanizing when you look at a comedy, you know, as opposed to now we, we're getting into the, the zone of dramedies, like Never Have I Ever or Rami, where it's like, okay, you still have the element of seeping in drama. But I think that, um, I, I don't know how I stay positive. Honestly, I think that you're just having a great support system. I think constantly trying to create enough material that, you know, new material excites you. So my next feature, the reason I'm excited about it is because the script is getting fantastic feedback. It has already gotten into all these festivals. So I think that the, yeah, so I think the festival market and, you know, just the independent film community support system is really helpful. Um, because if you start thinking about the odds, if you start looking at the Annenberg reports of like 4% of 
studio films are directed by women four to six percent like it's it's terrible like i might as well quit like yesterday you know so um my next film is a film that um focuses on a social media influencer it deals with the thematics of trolling technology and technical warfare in some ways it really talks about how difficult it is for women to take space Hmm. uh, from physical space public space to even online space you know, and sort of the the value of a woman's word in her life. And it is inspired by um, a social media influencer who was brutally killed in Pakistan. She was Pakistan's Kim Kardashian. Um, it's inspired by her spirit. Uh, her name uh, was Kandil Baloch, but it's not about her. It's not about an honor killing. I didn't want to glorify any of that. I really wanted to just talk about, you know, what it takes to be brave, uh, sometimes ignorance, I think. And uh, and then what are the impacts of that? So it's called Vakri, when, which in Punjabi means like uh, one of a kind. And uh, it was invited to Cannes to be part of their official selection talent development program called L'Atelier in the Cine Fondation. And um, also was part of Locarno's Open Doors, one of eight projects, one of 15. So it's, it's getting a lot of you know, traction in that sense. But it's a foreign language film. So again, you know, I, to answer your question, I think I just don't think about just the economics of it all the time only. I think about what drives me as a storyteller. Sure. You would think after the film I made, I should really try and try and really break it in Hollywood. And I'm trying, right? It's impossible. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, life is going by. Life is short. Yeah. We're in a pandemic. If there's, you know, it's always the, the reality but a pandemic really pushes that, you know, and highlights it. And I'm like, I just want to make this film. I know it's going to be an early language film. I know the market will be limited, even if we premiere it can. But this film needs to be out there because they are influencers every day that are, you know, committing suicide or, you know, having pressure yeah. and nervous breakdowns. And so like, so anyway, so that's, I think how, I think I keep myself inspired uh, by ignorance. <laughs> After the break, Aram talks about how COVID impacted the film's premiere. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is filmmaker Aram Parveen Bilal. Her latest film is called I'll Meet You There. The movie was supposed to premiere at the prestigious South by Southwest Festival in 2020, but was canceled because of COVID. She talked about its impact. It was hard. Not only was it obviously the pandemic, I had just had my first child. Wow. And I was in severe sort of postpartum shock. And it was like three weeks, like I, literally my premiere date was going to be her 12th week birthday. And I was going to unveil her to the world. In postpartum, I was like, you know, making sure all the stuff was ready. We had sold, we were going to be sold out. We had a whole press junket. Everything. The other thing that people don't understand is it's not just any other festival. There are two or three festivals in North America that essentially, I think, can really launch your career in a way that Hollywood pays attention. And being one of 10 in competition at South by, it's like you're one of 10 in thousands of films. Yeah. Or being one of 10 at Sundance. These are two festivals where I feel like if you are in competition, Tribeca also is like definitely uh, up there. You have a chance, A, to be wrapped by agents and managers, which then suddenly makes you visible to, you know, all those like Hollywood powers that don't really care about you before. And secondly, it really helps with the possible buyings and the offers coming for your film. So not only was it just snatched from under our feet six days yeah. before we were going to take off, 
it was also a situation where there was no backup plan because everybody was scrambling. The world hadn't seen a pandemic in a century. And it was like, how dare you talk about your little premiere when people are dying, right? And <laughs> I wrote an op-ed about this called Death of a Moment. And part of it was like, A, I, I, most people don't understand what I've lost. So grieving is, it's very difficult to grieve this. B, you're kind of not allowed to grieve, you know? And C, yeah. there is no backup plan for my film that I've been... I've been working on for seven years, you know? So, and the, you know, everybody's like, oh, but Netflix wants, like Netflix wants all these movies because, you know, like all their product, I'm like, no, it doesn't work this way. They are Goliath. They have a giant pipeline. You know, they're not, and what what happened? Here's what happened. When, when everything shut down, guess who else was shut out? All those big films. Where do you think they were going? They were all going to the streamers because it was like, well, we don't know what's happening with this pandemic, right? Right. So when when these streamers have an option to pick like a Wonder Woman or, a, you know, like a Scorsese film, do you think they're going to mess around with our South by Indie? Probably right, right. not. Then the other people were also like, people were freaking out. Theaters were shutting down. Everyone basically, what people did was what people always do to survive is they held close to their resources. They seal their purses. So from from literally going to like, wow, we're going to hopefully maybe have a bidding war or an offer to like, nobody wants to even talk or respond to emails. And so it was a very lonely journey. And then all these poor festivals were really trying to help. And I was like, and they hadn't figured their game out. And I was like, I can't show it your festival for free without any like price wall and without geo blocking. Like they were trying to figure their stuff out. I'm like, you're taking my audience away. So I would rather go for it on-demand platform and have people pay the three, four dollars and watch my movie rather than everybody's now watching my movie because of all these festivals. So I had to also, which by the way is a big joy in filmmaking, is when you get to travel to festivals. And oh, I can only imagine get to see people's reaction see people's to your work. None of that. The entire year. Wow. And for whatever reason, they didn't do their Q&As, the one or two that we did. They didn't do their Q&As where we could see the audience. It was this black hole like webinar oh. we were talking to. So I did not get the the sort of satisfaction or Q&A of an audience up until July 11th, 2021. Wow. A year and three months after myself. Sure. And that was also just because of this, you know, man, uh, Sean Dawes for Indie Scene, who basically had promised the South by filmmakers that, you know, he was going to help them with a theatrical premiere. Oh, that's great. And we were sold out and it was lovely, but it was, you know, a little bit too late. Like I was, I had already tried to move on and, and figure my, you know, life out. Anyway, it's, it is what it is. I mean, it's, yes, I agree. I'm very proud uh, of the perseverance. I'm very proud of the very innovative way we had a virtual premiere with Level Forward earlier this year. So they came on for an impact distribution. And so we had a, a week long of virtual premieres for North America where every day you could watch the film and then there would be a virtual panel talking about race and surveillance, immigrant identity, you know, rhythms mm-hmm. of Pakistan. So all the th- themes of the film like we had people like Ramzi Qasim who won a Supreme Court case, you know, giving Muslims in New York a chance to sue the FBI when they were asked to like spy on their communities. And then when they said no, they were put on no flight lists. And so, so we were able to really affect conversation and change because up until this film, honestly, like up until five years ago, like I said, people would say things like there should be something wrong in the mosque or this doesn't look okay. Like the FBI wouldn't do this. And now you have all these documentaries that say, no, yeah. actually the FBI, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it has been actually very, um, on one hand, seeing people say, and like middle-aged South Asian men have never connected to me before the way they have after the film. 
And you know, representation matters. Like all these men have been like, and they're they're some of the harshest to please. Like Pakistani men, Indian men, like you know, the uncle category, very difficult to please. They have been calling and thanking me for making this film. Oh, you know, that's and that's a beautiful feeling, coupled with people saying, "I never knew that it was this bad," or like, yeah. "I'm sh- like I," you know. So, so in that way, grateful. Alhamdulillah, it's good. Yeah, it it, it certainly is. Um, you yourself. I, I believe you're born in the U.S., raised yeah. in Nigeria and Pakistan, went to school back here in the U.S. Can you talk about your kind of worldly travels and how that's informed you as a filmmaker, as an adult, you know, as a Muslim? I'm very, very fortunate to have been well-traveled at a very young age. And uh, what I've learned is that we don't know as much as we think we do. And what I've also learned is that people are at the bottom of it. Everyone's just trying to get through their day and live. <laughs> They're good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that we're very, we're all wired the same way. Once you've traveled a lot, I think you realize that there's so much beauty and there's so many different ways of life, right? So I think the entitled sense of self goes away. What also comes about is this this hope that there's enough common ground for communication, you know? And I think that is kind of why this film is titled On Me There is also that no matter how different your views are, there's got to be some place where you can meet each other, you know, and just start yeah. building common ground. And I think in a world where we are growing um, to be more and more fascist and more and more us versus them everywhere, I just really wish everybody was forced to travel. You know, I feel like in America, like I've always said that, you know, how people, my friends in Europe always have a gap year after, or they don't always, but it's a big culture to have a gap year of travel after college. I really wish that America had like compulsory like peace score or six sure, months to yeah. your travel. Because when you realize, you know, I feel like there would be less wars. I feel like there would be <laughs> more collaboration. I feel like, you know, so you can understand why it it helps, again, for the powers that be to, to keep people divided um, yeah, and sure. controlled, right? So it all goes back to, again, the dynamics of power. 100% agree. One question that I like to ask my guests is, do you have a uniquely American Muslim experience that you want to share? Oh my gosh, I do. I I think that I was thinking about this question and um, I think the moment when I realized I wanted to make this film, um, it was the day after the Muslim ban was announced by Donald Trump. Yeah. And I was in the process of moving and uh, and those were the days when like every other day, like we were, I would have a bag hand, like with a bandana and spray and all of those things because we were just doing so many marches. And sure. I, like three days before this experience, I was filming the first women's march um, for this incredible filmmaker, Amy Berg. I was doing some second unit photography for her. And I was like, you know, in crushing crowds in LA. I think they they crossed a million way above um, expectation. And I remember that as we were filming, I remember seeing this young black woman on a, a light pole, a street light pole, standing up with a Black Lives Matter post, uh, uh, you know, board. And she was wearing sunglasses and I could just see that she was tearing up. And I remember walking to her and being like, can you t- talk, walk me through your feelings? And she said, you know, I grew up in this country. I was born in this country but I have never felt American until this day where I feel and I see a sea of boards talking about the fact that my life matters. I have never felt such public support till this day, till this day I've not felt American. And I just remember that I was just shocked, right? I was just like, wow, how powerful. Three days later, 
I hear that there's these, you know, impromptu protests at LAX um, in response to the Muslim ban. My mom is about to come to this country to start receiving medical care. And I'm hearing that even green card holders are being detained because everything was so just complicated then. So I, you know, I never thought that Trump being elected could affect me so personally so soon that within like nine days, there was a question that, you know, I was calling my mom and saying that if they stop you, you know, you're going to have to call this lawyer. She'll be waiting outside, all this stuff, right? All the stress is happening. I hear about this protest and I pick up my protest bag and I rush, I take an Uber, I walk as an I'm as I'm walking into Tom Bradley, which is the international, international terminal. I hear like chants, you know, to this day when I'm talking about this, I get goosebumps. Like I can just hear, let them in, let them in. And like, you know, just there's thousands of people at Tom Bradley, that same terminal that I came to the U.S. for the first time, you know, to, to go to school at Caltech. And these people also are holding banners that say, let them in. We are all Muslim, all of that. And within three days, I had the same exact visceral reaction to that black woman. As I was walking, I didn't realize, but I was bawling because I realized at that moment that I was fearful that there wouldn't be this much support. I could not have believed that people would come out in droves and in our support because I feared that at the bottom of it, people didn't like Muslims and that what Donald Trump was saying is what every American felt. That was the fear from like baggage from post 9-11 America, right? And the post 9-11 world. And this is the moment that was super American is as I'm walking and I'm crying, this woman comes muscling through the crowd and hugs me tight and whispers in my ear, you will be fine. And she turned around and she disappeared. And I didn't even know what happened. I just remembered that I wiped my tears and I started, I joined everyone in the chance. And that day I came home and I said, I need to start crowdfunding. I don't care about investors. This film was going to happen. I, I, I'm just speechless. What a story. It was um, incredible. It was really one of those days where I, I talk about it on my crowdfunding page, but I was like, the American public is going to carry this film. They are ready. They are ready to see this film. I mean, I just, you know, it, it was such a, an amazing feeling to see so many of our fellow Americans support us, you know? Yeah. From, you felt like, yeah, life. you felt like you were seen. And sadly this is happening with every community. It's like my East Asian friends with all this, like, you know, hate that was happening in the past four months. I mean, it's been happening forever, but there was a moment in time, you know, where they were like, we feel seen our, you know, black American friends after Floyd were like, there's a moment in time we feel seen more than ever. And it's kind of sad because these are these silver linings of all this hate, Right. It's, it's a happy, sad moment. But the fact that it is happening so late in the history of this country blows my mind. Yeah. The fact that this is happening with Black Americans, like literally now, like the fact that you see primetime drama television only as recent as like The Empire. Before that, it's been all these caricatures and comedy about Black people. But this is some crazy stuff. Like women got the right to vote not that long ago, you know, so... We behave that we're in this really woke existence. But really, if we stop and look at history, the ugliness is chasing us. You know, it's around us. We have to be conscious and we have to spread the light. Amazing. Um, Aram, thank you so much for joining American Muslim Project. I really appreciate um, all your perspectives. Yeah, it was so delightful. What a great way to start my morning. And um, I'm going to now have a cup of chai and uh, look forward to, yeah, just hearing more of your episodes. 
My conversation with Aram was recorded in August of 2021. If you are in the U.S., I'll Meet You There is currently available on iTunes and Amazon and a bunch of the other platforms to rent or buy. And like I said at the beginning of the show, it is also being released in the Middle East this week. Check out our show notes for links to where you can watch it and how you can follow Aram on all the social networks. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show is produced and edited by Mark Ganado, Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. You can find us online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Mm-hmm.